0: As we're all coming together here let's take a moment as we do to just um, let ourselves be still before the Lord let our spirits catch up with our bodies um, and uh, prepare ourselves for the word we're thankful that you meet us here in this place to reveal yourself to us through your word through um, our spirits your spirit within us and i just pray that um, your spirit is at work through my words through um, the hearing of those and the processing of those as we um, unpack your your scripture and just encounter you together this morning it's in jesus holy name i pray Amen. All right, so, um, yes, we'll start with the scripture, and as is our custom, let's stand up as an act of reverence for the word. Our passage for this morning is John 13, 1 through 17. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not every one was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so we're in the last week of our series. Anthony left me with the last week of this series we've been in, just, you know, went off to like have rest and like Sabbath or something. Um, but that's all right. I'm excited to be up here talking about the order of love. So um, just to kind of review where we've been, we've been looking at this order of love that God first loves us, and it's critical to um, focus on this order because out of that love that God lavishes on us, then we love God and we can love others. So we've talked over the last few weeks about How wounds and sins can get in the way of us opening ourselves to receive the fullness of God's love. But God's love overcomes this so that we too can love. Um, And we've talked about how God's love is bound up with God's commitment to creation and new creation. And this shapes how we love others as we enter into that same purpose bound to the purposes of creation and new creation. And then last week, Anthony talks about how um, God shows his, shows his love by being present with us and advocating for us. Um, and talked about his commitment to being with us, which is, frankly, pretty intense. It's beautifully intense. And the call in that, then, is for us to live out the same kind of love that we've received from God. And through the process of this, Anthony has talked about how none of this is simple, as we're dealing with our wounds and our our tendencies towards certain sins. Um, We're trying to love people who are difficult, whatever that might be. But he's drawn us this picture from Scripture of the boundless wealth um, of the love that God lavishes on us. And last week in particular emphasized that loving others doesn't come from a place of scarcity, but from this unimaginable abundance of God's loving presence. So that leads us into this last week of the series, Um, which will focus on how we see all of this come together to fuel the self-sacrificial love that Jesus models and um, the ways then that we participate in that self-sacrificial love that he also requires of us. So in this story um, that we're looking at, Jesus models this order of love in action, showing what it looks like when we put all these things together that it creates this identity that's rooted in the love of the Father, that's bound to his purpose, and those things are what free us up and empower us to do the same kind of, to to live out this same kind of sacrificial love um, that he's asking us to do. So um, I want to start first just to kind of give the preview of where we're headed with looking at how does Jesus model um, this self-sacrificial love. Break down the logistics of kind of what's happening in the passage, um, and then look a little bit at these ideas of identity. What sac- self-sacrificial love like isn't is and isn't related to identity, and then talk about um, the idea that uh, it's all bound to this purpose. So self-sacrificial love is not a sacrifice of self and selfhood. Gotta stop doing that. Um, And it is the kingdom of God on earth coming about. So let's start with what Jesus is actually modeling in the passage. So um, we start out with the context of this. This story of foot washing may be pretty familiar if you've been around the church for a time and pretty familiar particularly in the context of this subject of self-sacrificial love. It's used a lot. Um, this story is used a lot because we see it modeled so clearly and because, you know, Jesus is directly calling us out and saying, this is what you need to do. Um, so just so we're oriented toward this, even if it's a review, um, we've got this situation in the ancient world where um, the, the people in the story are walking everywhere with their sandals on. They're dusty, they're dirty. There are a lot of, you know, animals around. And so um, it's the, the common custom for a host when they're asking people over inviting people into their home to provide a basin of water for foot washing before dinner Um, and this is a, a really widespread custom of the the context that we're looking at here the host would also in addition to this act of hospitality of providing water provide someone to do the foot washing because it was considered a pretty gross task I mean, for some of us, like maybe feet are just like, ooh, gross feet, don't want to think about that. We're going to talk about this way too much today. Maybe that's not the case, but they're still covered in a lot of stuff. And so it's a demeaning task to do this. And so the host would provide a servant or a slave if the household had those, or if not, the wife of the home, because in this time, that's also someone who's considered of a lower social position. Um, And so when Jesus steps into this, Jesus, the teacher, the Lord, the God of all creation, um, it's very clearly an act of self-sacrifice. And the reaction that Peter has to this um, really kind of highlights that. So Peter really quickly responds with kind of shock, like, what are you doing? Are you washing my feet? What is happening here? Um, And we see him, like, continue on that, even when Jesus tries to, you know, kind of say, okay, I get it. This is weird. Just go with me. Trust me on this. It'll make sense eventually. Peter still pushes back with that commentary that like, no, you're never going to wash my feet. And he doesn't relent until Jesus says, you don't have anything to do with me if you don't let me do this. So that highlights the fact that this isn't just like some minor thing, but it's a significant setting aside of um, who Jesus is to the disciples in order to take part in this. Um, The fact that he says you don't have any part of me unless you do this is also important because what we can understand from the other side of the resurrection that Peter can't see in this moment is this idea that like the foot washing is really also working as a metaphor, right? So the cleansing of our sins through the blood of Jesus that's about to happen like the next day on the cross is also what's at work here. So we've got these kind of two layers that we're looking at when Jesus says you should do the same, wash each other's feet. And um, so that kind of brings us into where we're, where we're headed with all of this, which is to look at how do we respond to that and what does that really mean for us? So um, it might mean that we're called to this big self-sacrifice in the sense like Jesus goes to lay down his life for others. There are lots of stories over the course of um, you know, the history of Christianity of people who are willing to actually physically lay down their lives to spread the gospel, to seek justice for the oppressed. Um, and that may be the call. It may be the call for some of us even here to like make significant big sacrifices for that. But this story isn't just about that. It's still Jesus doing this physical everyday kind of act of foot washing. Um, And so our call is to that same kind of thing, the same kind of self-sacrificial love. Um, And that's really where I want to focus as we go through this, because I think once we start looking into, okay, what does that look like then? What does it look like for me to wash the feet, metaphorically, of the people around me? Um, At least for me, that brings up a whole lot of questions. Like when Anthony asked me to do this, I was like, okay, But I need to sit down and talk through because I get all caught up in my questions about like how much self-sacrifice is enough self-sacrifice? And what if in this process of self-sacrifice, I'm asked to just like literally be nothing? Like, do I get to have a self anymore? Um, And this is kind of where my mind goes with that. So I want us to look at the way we can respond in kind of two different ways that I think are really bound up with our sense of self and our sense of identity. And this is really where the idea that our wounds and our sin can get in the way of um, experiencing and living out God's love, where that comes into play. So we can either like clinch onto our idea of self and hold it really tightly, or we can feel really defeated by this and kind of enter into this place of shame, and I need to just deny myself entirely in order to live this out. So those are the two things I want to examine first this idea of like clinching and holding on to our sense of who we are. Um, We can use a more theological term of prideful self-assertion with this, Um, and there may be this temptation that we have to hold on to um, that kind of prideful self-assertion as we go forward into this. I'm just realizing that like my slides that I updated this morning did not apparently update like in what I've got going on here. Yeah, so we can go forward through a couple more of these. Yeah, okay. Hopefully the other things will line up. If not, we'll just make it work. So prideful self-assertion is um, the first thing I want to talk about. I think that this idea of like pride getting in the way is something we've talked about probably a lot as a church, like maybe not just as this particular body, but as the church as a whole, this idea of pride as an underlying sin. And in this case this holding on to the sense of of prideful self-assertion is a need to protect the sense of self and assert the things that we see as making up as our own self. It's this sense that if you give in, if you show weakness, you'll be humiliated, you'll lose your dignity, and cease to be the person that, like, you should be seen as. Um, And this can take shape in a lot of different ways. So maybe... It starts to look like you know, being on the grind all the time so that you can like, get ahead at work and call the shots and show people what you're really capable of. And then it turns into this whole thing where you're just living your life like gaslight gatekeeping, girlbossing your way through the day. So um, for those who understand that phrase, that will probably make sense. Thank you, Jeanette, for laughing. <laughs> yes. Maybe it looks like the desire to be right all the time like in politics, in work processes, in parenting, um, without being able to set aside your need to exert like your rightness and um, setting aside that so that you can listen to what others' needs and perspectives may be. All of that kind of thing becomes really quickly exhausting, and it's counter to what Jesus models in the story that we're looking at here. So Jesus' self-sacrificial love, as we can see here, derives from a rootedness in the Father's love that allows him to set aside his like social position without losing anything about who he actually is. So we see this, um, I think, throughout this passage, but especially in those verses. Um, if you go back, one I'm still on that, um, the these verses three and four here that John is really particular about telling us that Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. He's coming from the Father, and he's returning to the Father. So who Jesus is is absolutely rooted in his, um, his role as a member of the Godhead, part of the Trinity, this mysterious thing. And we've talked about in the last few weeks that like God is love. So he's coming from this place of love and returning to this place of love. And then what I think is really critical is that first word in verse 4, so. It is because of that, not in spite of that, that he gets up and lowers himself physically onto the ground to do this thing that would be considered demeaning in society. And he doesn't lose who he is in the midst of that. He returns to that in verse 13 and 14 there. He says, you call me teacher and Lord, these positions of authority, and rightly so, that is what I am, and I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet. And so the idea that that I see in this is that because we are loved by God, when we receive the love that he offers freely to us, that we can let go of trying to clench so tightly onto those things that define us and just rest in the sense of who we are in God's love. We don't need to prove to others and assert to others are like position in that because God, God's love remains consistent. It can't be taken away by human perception about these things. So that's kind of one side of this. On the other side, some people may be feeling a little bit defeated by this or hearing things through this different lens. Um, And that takes us to this place of shameful self-diffusion. Anthony actually introduced me to that term. It's one that comes up in theology. It's one that's actually been um, brought into the theological conversation more recently, particularly by um, female and feminist theologians who are trying to help hone this doctrine of of sin and what, what we're tempted toward, and how the, the kind of pressures of society might, might feed into that. So this idea of samef- shameful self-diffusion is this, this sense that if I don't pour myself out to complete emptiness, then others will shame or judge or maybe abandon me if I don't do this. And sometimes that can be really enforced by um, the expectations that are around us in society. Um, I think it's helpful to look at some definitions of shame in this. Brene Brown is a researcher who's done a lot of talking about and research on shame, and she defines it as the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we're flawed and therefore unworthy of acceptance and belonging. So this is where this becomes um, a complex but really critical kind of uh, part of this conversation that what we are being asked to do is not to totally set aside any sense of self. Um, And yet, we can get caught up in this. So maybe this idea of sinful self-assertion, just to give us a picture of it, looks like saying yes to everything, at work, at church, in the community, and burning yourself out, and then berating yourself for feeling burdened by those things that are good and that you probably should be doing, because you should be glad that you're able to serve. And service is important, but that level of burnout is not the goal. Maybe it looks a lot like mom guilt. Some of you guys probably know this phrase, mom guilt, right? Um, It's not something that's exclusive to moms, but like research says that moms actually proportionately much more than dads experience this. Um, and it's a complex tension between who we see ourselves to actually be, like as parents, as wives, as, as contributors to society, whatever that might look like, and who we feel like we should be. Um, there's actually like a fancy psychological term that applies to this self-discrepancy theory, and I think that's really um, a big part of what we're looking at here. This discrepancy between who we see ourselves to be and who we believe we should be. Um, and lots of people can get caught up in this. Maybe it looks a lot like the story of Martha, the sister of Mary and Lazarus. I think a lot about this story of Martha. I think because I've always seen myself from like a pretty young age in Martha and gotten a little bit defensive about who she is. But I was thinking um, about this kind of idea and this story as I was um, kind of preparing for this, And seeing how um, when we encounter Martha the first time in Luke 10 here, um, we have this story where she's distracted. If you look at verse 40 there, Martha's distracted with much serving. Um, I use the ESV translation because it highlights that. She has all these things that she feels like she needs to do, and somebody's got to do them, right? And so she'd probably better do them because otherwise they're not going to get done. Um, And so she goes up to Jesus and says, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to come help me. And Jesus answers her saying, You're anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. I think sometimes when we look at this, and the reason that I can get defensive about this story, actually, is because Mary um, is kind of held up as this woman of faith, and we see Martha as, like, distracted by all these things, and as if she doesn't have faith herself. But when we see her another time in uh, John 11, when Jesus comes to um, address, like, the fact that Lazarus, her brother, has died, both Mary and Martha come to Jesus and respond to him directly with the same statement. If you had been here... He wouldn't have died, and the conversation with Mar- or with Martha that Jesus has is very rooted in faith, and she confesses directly, "I believe that you are the Christ, the Messiah." The same thing that in a different place Peter talks about, and uh, you know, Jesus says on this, the church will be built. So Martha is this woman of faith, but she's caught up in all of this um, service that she probably like feels that she has to do. I think it's really easy to imagine that she doesn't believe she's allowed to step away from that and sit at the feet of Jesus, even though she's a faithful woman. And so Mary in this um, is significant because what she has chosen is not just faithfulness, but she's actually chosen to sacrifice her relationship with the expectations that are placed on her. She probably has the same kind of social obligations in the household, but she says, no, I'm going to set that aside and put up a boundary because it's important, it's more important for me to go sit at the feet of Jesus. And I think this is the complicated part of looking at this idea of like standing up for yourself as a mode of self-sacrifice in this, Um, because it's really easy to justify that I just need to empty myself out completely. But Jesus doesn't want us to be nothing and no one. He wants us to seek him, and he sees us and loves us. We've come back again and again to this. He sees who we are. Um, And... If we go back to our story of the foot washing, Jesus models boundary setting in this as well. So when Peter finally gets on board, um, he jumps at this whole thing and is like, okay, fine. Don't just wash my feet, but my head and my hands as well. I want more from you, from what you're offering to give. And Jesus could give in to that and say like, okay, yes, you want this thing for me. I'll give it to you because that's what self-sacrifice looks like. But he doesn't. He sets that boundary and he pushes back and says, no, you don't need this. You've washed yourself, that's on you, that's fine. My role is just to wash the feet and that's all I'm going to do, that's what's critical. And so he sets this boundary because Peter doesn't need something else. Um, And so it's it's important for all of us, whether we sit in that space of of shameful self-diffusion or not, To remember that boundaries are really healthy. There's like a whole book called Boundaries that some of you guys might be familiar with um, that deals a lot with this concept that setting boundaries is helpful and healthy, not just for the person who's setting them, but for the people who end up kind of outside that boundary in some way. Um, But it's tricky because when we put those boundaries up, there is this self-sacrificial situation that follows. Um, That book, Boundaries, talks about how when we start putting boundaries in place, a lot of times what follows immediately is a wave of guilt that's driven by that shame and a wave of resentment on the side of the people who now have to do different things and change their own behaviors because of those boundaries that have been set. So it's not easy. And that's what makes this so relevant to this idea of self-sacrifice. But all of this, I think, fits into that bigger picture that we talked about when, when we went in that week with like all the, the, the talk about like the rugged commitment to creation, that God sets boundaries. And those boundaries are ultimately for the good of the people involved in them. And so that's an important thing to keep in mind. So, it is important to remember in both of these things regardless of whether we contend toward one side or the other or frankly a lot of us probably swing between them somewhat um, maybe in different areas or we start putting up boundaries and then we get fiercely protective of that sense of self and it can slide into one place or another but in all of the things it's important to remember how beautiful and life-giving and freeing it is to remember that our identity flows from the love of God and is rooted in that love of God, and that's what we need to hold on to. So that is also really bound up with the second big thing that I want to talk about, which is purpose. So probably won't spend quite as long on this, but self-sacrificial love is bound up with God's purpose um, and the thing that helps make it not just about deprivation and this annihilation of self and all these things that we might um, kind of falsely think about it with is to focus specifically on the purpose that God is leading us toward. Um, so I want to go back to our passage one more time and look at uh, this little sentence at the beginning, a couple of sentences here that um, show that Jesus is oriented toward this. So. Um, This is just before the Passover festival. We know he's on his way to the cross, and he knew that the hour had come for him to leave the world and go to the Father. So there's this big picture kind of orientation toward what he's doing. And then there's this statement that to me jumps out because it seems like a little bit weird. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So that stands out, and I start asking, like, what does that mean, love them to the end? It can be that we're just looking at it in the sense of like, like temporally, he loved them all the way through the suffering that he was about to encounter all the way to the cross. But the big picture of that is that the reason he could do that, hold on to the love for the people that he was sacrificing himself for, was this larger picture of the end goal of, of presence, of intimacy with God and people of the love being made whole um, in, in this relationship. So the end here in the Greek is related to this word telos, um, which I know Anthony has used a few times. I like this word, so I always pick up on it. Um, and if you've read any James K.A. Smith, like I know some people around here have read uh, You Are What You Love, for example, that idea of telos comes up a lot in this context. So the telos is like the goal or the purpose that we're working toward. Like that sort of end. And it's being focused on this big picture end that empowers us then to really, um, to really live into this kind of self-sacrificial love. So we see that kind of self-sacrificial love, as I said, in this passage where Jesus is on his way to the cross. And so it's not just foot washing, but it's this big metaphorical thing except that the foot washing is still part of this big metaphorical idea of working toward um, realizing the vision of the kingdom of God and bringing that about on earth. So even though it's a metaphor for Jesus' death and resurrection, it doesn't exclude us from taking part in that work as we go forward. And that, to me, goes all the way back to this, the place that we started in Mark that we jumped off from, where um, Jesus is telling people that the greatest commands are to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbors as yourself. And that can get tricky. We've talked about this a little bit when it feels like maybe we don't love ourselves well, or our neighbors are difficult to love. But when we think in terms of like the telos and this end goal, And for me, at least, that reorients the whole thing toward, like, what do I actually long for? Like, if I think about what I love about myself, it may not be that I'm looking at the reality of who I am, but the reality of who I want to be and what I long for God to transform me into. So loving ourselves looks like maybe longing for wisdom, longing for healing, longing for patience. Longing to be seen and made to be image bearers of God. And so when we're loving our neighbors as ourselves, we're longing for all of those things for them as well. And so it becomes not just about not engaging with things ourselves, but about engaging toward that end with the people around us that we can sacrifice our own interests for And that idea comes up all the way through scripture. So it's it's the core of the golden rule, doing to others as you would have them to do for you. It's not something that's transactional. I'm going to do this for you so that I get it in return. But it's because we long for ourselves and our neighbors to both experience the love of God and the love that we are capable at our best of, uh, of lavishing on each other. And experiencing that fully. It looks a lot like mercy. Not trying to hold on to like this is the absolute thing that I must insist on. But rather giving others the benefit of the doubt. And welcome, welcoming them into the mercy and grace that God has given to us. I also um, think it aligns really well with Proverbs 3.27. Um, my husband Adam, who many of you know reads Proverbs a lot every single day. And he was talking about this one the other day, and it just kind of clicked how much some of this um, really fits here. Proverbs 3.27 says that we should not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in our power to act. So we could get hung up on this idea of like, okay, but who who is good due to? I can't figure out how to make that sentence work. But like withholding good from people, does anyone deserve it? Maybe not. But God gives it freely to all of us, and he's calling us consistently to live out that same kind of thing. Um, And so that means freely giving the good that we are able to give to others. So maybe some of this self-sacrificial love looks like things like not reacting with anger or bitterness when someone slights you. Like for me, in a practical sense, that means not getting really defensive when my high school students like don't love English as much as I love English. And I have to still stand there when they're saying like, Mrs. Reese, like how many, things, how many people do you think have actually read this book you assigned us? Is it like 10%? Um, and I'm sitting there looking at them thinking like, how many of you did just use ChatGPT to write this essay? And I have to let some of that just go and not get defensive and love them through it. Maybe, I think this is a complicated one, it looks like navigating the relationship with an aging parent or grandparent that we have responsibility for. And instead of just kind of deciding what we think is best for them or what makes us feel secure, that we need to ask them, what are your priorities? What do you want? What is it that, that you want the end of your life to look like? And that may be difficult. It may take more work. It may take grief that we don't really want to engage in. And yet, setting that aside and working through that process in a way um, that allows for less security may be something that 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 looks like. Maybe it looks like respecting the boundaries that the people in our lives put in place and recognizing that the ways that we want to, like, gut-level react to those boundaries is actually bound up with, like, the prideful self-assertion and recognizing the way others are trying to lay this foundation so that they, too, can experience God fully. I really love this quote um, from Antoine de Saint-Exupery. Struggle with that. saint X is the easier way to say it instead of the whole French name. Um, who was a fighter pilot and a children's book author and all of these different things. Um, but he said at one point, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up the men and women to gather wood, divide the work, and give orders. Instead, teach them to yearn for the, vastness and endless, the vast and endless sea. So when we're looking toward the telos, this end result— We're not looking just at what boards and nails and scraps of self-deprivation we can scrape together to try to fit this picture of, you know, self-sacrifice. But we're longing for the unity and abundance of the Spirit. We're resting in the fullness of the vast and endless sea of God's love and longing for that. And when we do that, we're seeing this order of love at work. God loves us first, and so we have the opportunity to live in that identity and be confident in who we are within that identity. When we love him, then in return we take on his telos, acknowledging that he is good and longing for the things that he longs for. And then out of that we can love others not because we're required to, but because it flows naturally from the abundance of God's love. So, we'll move from that into our space of confession and communion. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, I had this last bit here, just going to be a little bit awkward in my ending there, that Jesus <laughs> says um, in the, the, the last part of this text that you'll be blessed when you do this. Not transactionally, but by living into that abundance of love. So, Let's pray to wrap up, and then we'll go to confession and communion. God, thank you so much for loving us so abundantly that we don't have to um, just hold on desperately to the things that make us who we are outside of that love. And thank you for loving us in a way that sees us and longs for us um, to be fully whole people who seek after you. Um, I pray that we can focus on the beautiful purpose that you have in self-sacrifice, both in your own sacrifice and our own. God, we love you, and we're so thankful that you love us. It's in Jesus' name we pray.